Our reading this morning is from Romans chapter 12, verses 8 through 21. But I'm going to start at verse 6, because in the English version, that's where the sentence begins. <laughs> Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Thanks, Steve. The, the reason that it started in a weird place is because I wrote down verse 8 instead of verse 9, uh, which is where it should have started. But that's fine. Um, give us a little context. Uh, so uh, before we turn to the word now, let's open in, in prayer. Um, Father, I want to lift up our dear brother, Ron. Um, Lord, I pray for his increased health. Father, I pray for Rachel and Tim and Michelle as they are now being asked to make um, uh, end-of-life decisions about uh, CPR and, and life support systems and those kind of things. Lord, the doctor has said that Ron is a very sick man, that uh, this COVID has really gotten a hold of him because his body is already weakened because he's already suffering uh, many other ailments. And so, Lord, I just pray for him that, uh, Lord, if, as, as he nears this River Jordan, as he stands uh, closer to the bank than he was yesterday, closer than we are today, and he looks across and sees the celestial city, Lord, we're wondering if it's time for him to cross or to remain with us on this side. We know that, Jesus, you stand at the gates of the city waiting to receive him at the right time, at the proper time. And so, Lord, if, uh, if the proper time has not yet come, then we pray that you would give the doctors wisdom and care. And, uh, Lord, that you would give uh, Rachel, Tim, and Michelle uh, understanding on how they should care for Ron in, um, in his weakness. And, Lord, if it is time for him to cross that River Jordan and enter that city gate to be welcomed in by you, then, Lord, we pray that the crossing would be smooth for him, that he would go uh, home to his, his celestial city, to his Savior's arms, um, with the joy of knowing that he has run a good race, that he's completed the course that was given to him, and that, uh, Lord, you receive him into his eternal rest, uh, rest in your arms, rest in the home that you've prepared for him. And Lord, if that's the case, then we pray for Rachel and for Tim and Michelle and for the whole LaFoon family as they grieve um, his passing. Lord, for our church as we miss our brother dearly. And Lord, um, again, if that is not your will at this point, if his, his uh, path continues further on, then Lord, I pray that you would show us as brothers and sisters of Ron and Rachel of Tim and Michelle, how we can best care for them. What is it that you will accomplish in their lives through us? And any way that this turns out, Lord, whatever your perfect and, and right plan is, 
We pray that you would be glorified, that, that uh, the saints would see your mercy in all of these things and in your wisdom, your great wisdom in all of these things. And Lord, that it would increase our trust in you. Lord, as we turn now to your word, I pray that that trust would be increased. Lord, that you would use the ordinary means of grace, the things that you normally use to, to strengthen our faith and our hope. Show us from your word what it is that we are to do, how we are to think, and renew our minds, Lord. Uh, prepare us to, to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, to see ourselves the way you do. Uh, Lord, use your word in our lives, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So um, where we're at in Romans, um, I mentioned it last week, it, it bears repeating, and I'm going to dig into it a little bit more today, is um, up through chapter 11, Paul had been dealing with that question of how are we right with God? How are we justified? And we saw repeatedly that we are justified by faith alone. Um, the, the thesis of his gospel is that the gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, uh, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. So everybody needs to be saved. Everybody can be saved. We have to have that truth cemented in our minds before we really dig into chapter 12 and on. Otherwise, we could make a pretty grave mistake. We have to remember that we are justified. That is, we have received Jesus' righteousness on us by faith. That's how we're justified. Because now we're going to turn to the next step in our salvation, which is sanctification, which is growing in holiness. It is becoming more Christ-like. And when we come to sanctification, if we forget how we're justified, we can begin to blur the two and think that our sanctification, the good works that we see being done in and through us, will contribute to how God likes us better. And that's a fatal mistake. It's a terrible mistake. So we don't want to make that mistake. So we're going to cover really quick before we looked into the rest of uh, the, the verses in, in 12. I just want to start with this idea that when we talk about self, uh, sanctification, that is becoming holy, becoming more like Jesus, we're talking about a love-fueled work of sanctification. And, and I get that because the very first thing that Paul says in verse 9 is, let love be genuine. And it starts out, actually in Greek, it's only three words, a noun, a, an article, a noun, and an adjective. Uh, there's no verb in there. So what it actually says literally is unhypocritical love or authentic love or true love. It just kind of makes this statement. Um, so why then would we interpret it as a command, let love be genuine? Well, we'll see that as we go through the rest of the section. But I think a, an important way to see this is what Paul is kind of like putting as a header for this whole section is genuine love real love, authentic love. And he's not just saying that in the abstract. He's saying it because it is part of our sanctification. So before we start into this, we need to understand, well, what is authentic love? How does the Bible define what love is for us? And when we go through this section, we'll see what love is. He'll unpack it. He'll show it to us. But what we have to understand as we approach this is we think of in the West as love is a feeling. You have love at first sight. You see somebody, you get Twitter-pated, and that's love. Well, that is the beginning of love. It, it, love is indeed a feeling. It, it is something that, that occurs inside us, and it, and it pushes us in a direction. But the way the Bible explains love, the way the Bible demonstrates love, is not just a positive feeling. It is a positive feeling that results in action. So the most famous Bible verse there is, for God so loved the world. He so loved the world that he did what? He just smiled at it a lot. He had warm, fuzzy feelings. No, God so loved the world. Love was such a, a driving force for him, love for the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So the love of God was not just the positive feeling. It was the positive action, too. It resulted in, in him doing something. John 15, greater love has no one than this. So if you want to hear the heights, the pinnacle of what love is, greater love has no one than this, than they feel good about people. No, that they lay down their life for someone, for his friends. 
So this, this biblical concept of love, this biblical ideal of love is not just, I have a desire to do good for you or for you to be um, well taken care of, but it results in an action. It results in something that, that moves, that Jesus would show that nobody could love more than he does because he lays down his life for his friends. And so it's not surprising that in chapter 14, Jesus would say, if you love me, if love is genuine, if you love me, you keep my commandments. If you love me, you do what I'm telling you to do. Um, not if you do what, you, what I tell you to do, then I love you. It's the other way around. If you love me, then you'll keep my commandments. And so later on in, verse, in chapter 14, he says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me is loved by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So in all of this, all of this picture is this genuine love that Paul is commanding us to. What he's telling us is it's not only a positive feeling. It's not only a desire for someone else. It is a desire that results in action. Real biblical love does something. And, and our culture gets it all twisted up and all knotted around, and it turns into a rom-com um, bump into each other at the coffee store and, and it's love at first sight and then, uh, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But it, it, it is so much more than that. It goes beyond that. It can start there, but it has to continue on. And so when we look through the rest of this section, what we're going to see is Paul is announcing, let love be genuine. And this is what genuine love looks like. This is what it looks like in you. So here's the thing now, if, if love is real in us, if we're allowing love to be genuine, if it's not hypocritical, and, and it's literally the word that the adjectives that, that's there is hypocritical, but with the an prefix on it. So unhypocritical, anti-hypocritical. So if we're going to let love be not hypocritical, if that love that's in us for God is genuine, and it's born from that faith by which we're justified, then it will do something in our hearts. It will, it will produce something because that's what biblical love does is it, it is a feeling that results in an action. And so that's why Paul tells us, let love be genuine. Let that love for God be genuine in you and watch what it produces. Watch what rolls out of you. Watch what comes out of you. And so that brings us to the second point that I want to talk about, which is the doctrine of sanctification. And sanctification is really important to get right because if you don't get it right, it can backfire. It can turn around and work wrongly on you. So what is sanctification? Well, sanctification, first of all, is a process. It's something that's going on, something that's happening to us throughout life. Hebrews 10, 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected, um, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So we are in process of being sanctified. It's happening to us. And at the same time, it's also a completed process. Uh, Hebrews 10.10, 10, and by this will, that's God's will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So it's a process. We are being sanctified. We have been sanctified. Sanctification is also a future hope. It's something that we look forward to. Romans 6.22, Paul said, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So the completed sanctification process is at its end is eternal life. And so what sanctification ultimately is, is it's God's desire. It's his will for you. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, this is the will of God, your sanctification. It is God's desire to justify you and then to lead you, to draw you into holiness, to make you a holy person, to make you more like his son. So how does God sanctify us? How does he bring us along in that process of making us holy? Well, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So do you see what he says? He says, as you have obeyed, 
That's becoming more holy, acting more holy. As you have always obeyed, so now do it also. Work out your salvation. Notice he doesn't say work for your salvation, work to become saved. What he says is you have been saved. You have been justified by faith. Now work that out. Take that forward. Draw that out in your life. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to both will and to work for his own good pleasure. So God's work of sanctification in us is his work. It's what he is doing. It's what he's accomplishing in us. Sanctification is God's work in us. So the question then is, how does he work that in us? What is he doing? Um, there's, there's errors on both sides of this. You could think, well, um, God does it. He gives us commands. And so I have to follow these commands. And if I follow those commands, then I'll grow in sanctification and I'll become sanctified. And the problem with putting your hope in your ability to do those things, even with God's assistance, is it can either lead to pride. I've done it. Why can't you? Come on, get your act together. I was able to beat that sin. Why can't you? Or utter despair. I can't lick that sin. I can't make that thing go away. And to begin to doubt. So you could fall off the horse that way, either by pride or, or just being ruined by your own sin. Or you could get lazy. You could say, well, it's God's work, so I'll just do nothing. If, if he wants that sin to go away, he's going to have to make it go away. The truth of the matter is God is doing this work in you. And he's doing it through means, through things to bring it about. So when we're told to work out our salvation, we're told to work it out. But Paul in that same sentence says, because it's God who's at work in you. So we have a role in this. We have something to do, but we still have to acknowledge that it's God's work in us. And so instead of either getting lazy and saying, God will do it, we have to work at it. And instead of getting pride or uh, proud or, or destroyed by our successes or failures, we have to look at it and say, well, it's God's work in me. So it really, if we, if we keep it as God's work, we, we don't fall off either side of that rail. We're, we're, we're heading right down the, the center. So here's, I think Peter's got just a wonderful way of explaining to us what sanctification looks like. And this comes from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. Let me read it because it's a little long, and then I'll back up and walk us through and show you the, the trajectory, the path of God's thought or on how we are sanctified. So here's what he says. He says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and they are increasing, they keep you from being coming ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So do you see what Paul or what uh, Peter tells us? He says, first of all, you have everything you need for life and godliness. It has been given to you. It is God's divine power that has given you everything you you need for life and godliness. So brothers and sisters, what do you need right now to live a godly life? You have been given it. His divine power has given it to you. You have it at your, at your disposal now. It is through the knowledge of him who called you. And what we see at the end is it's the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So by understanding Jesus better, by knowing him more, God's divine power gives you everything you need for life and godliness. But that's not the end. You just don't get proper Christology and go, well, I'm sanctified. Listen to where he continues on. He says that it is through the knowledge of him who called us that we receive his precious and very great promises. That's faith. That's saying, Lord, you promised me these things. I am trusting in those promises. The fact that you said you would do this, 
That's where my hope is. It's not in my ability. It's not in my effort. It's not in my work. It's in your precious and very great promises. So that through them, he says, we become partakers of the, of the divine nature. That's a troubling phrase. What does it mean that we partake of the divine nature? Well, it doesn't say that we acquire the divine nature. We don't become divine. What we do is there's the divine nature is God's grace, his love, his mercy, his power, his strength, his wisdom. And we get to participate with that because we are trusting in his promises to us. We're walking with him in that, that uh, divine nature. We, we taste some of what it's like because we're being conformed to what? To the image of Jesus Christ. That is human nature and divine nature in one. So that's how we begin to participate. We partake of it. We get a taste of it, not acquire it. We don't ever become divine. And he says that it's through that we escape the corruption that comes through sinful desire. And that's the goal of our sanctification is to escape the corruption that comes from our sinful desires. Our desires get rejiggered. They get rewired and put back in order by those promises through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And he says, therefore, make every effort to, you are to make every effort. This is something that God has done. God does. He works it all out in you. And then he tells you, now make every effort to do these things. And if you're doing these things, what he, what he promises us is if these qualities are yours and they're increasing. So he doesn't say, well, as soon as they get to a certain level, then you're saved. He says, if they're yours and they're increasing. So look at your life and look at these qualities and say, do I have them even a little bit? And, and are they growing? As I've longer I've been a Christian, do I see them increase and get better and better? If I have, then he says, then, then you're effective and fruitful. And, and this is the direction that God wants you to go. So sanctification is God's work in us. It's what he's doing in us. And the way he accomplishes it, one of the ways he accomplishes it is he gives us commands. He says to, to do these things and don't do these things. So what he's telling us is, is he's changed our heart. He's made our hearts new and he's leading us through to where he wants us to be. He, but he doesn't do it just snap of the fingers and it's over. He's working in reality, in space and time, and he's drawing us closer to himself. So the promise of the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 33, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. So he doesn't say, I will give them the law in this new covenant. I'll give them the law on tablets and then try to drill it into their heads. He says it applies directly and first to the heart. So once his law has been written in our hearts, then we lean on Jesus Christ. Then we start having a new desire. We say that's the direction we want to go. And you can tell this is a promise for us because it's quoted again in Hebrews chapter 10. So we, we have to, first of all, keep this straight. We are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. That means that we have trusted Jesus and God has assigned to us Jesus' righteousness. We are sanctified by that same faith. That faith doesn't then hit, hit a, a useless point where we go, okay, well, I believe now that doesn't matter anymore. We're actually sanctified by that same faith. We've been uh, justified by grace through faith. God writes his law on our hearts, not on our minds. And so now we begin to desire rightly. It, it, it inclines our heart in a new direction. And so one of the greatest sermons to explain that, that desire issue of the heart is a, a, an old sermon by a man named Thomas Chalmers, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. I just want to quote a couple of sections from it because I think he really hits the point. Um, he says, it is thus that a boy ceases at length to be a slave of his appetite, but it is because a more mature taste has now been brought, has brought it into submission, and that the youth ceases to idolize pleasure, but it is because the idol of wealth has become stronger and gotten ascendancy. So the, the young man just is, is, you know, wanting all of these things, as he matures, he gets a more mature taste. His, his desires aren't for G.I. Joe anymore. Now it's for this particular car. And then as he gets older, that begins to be replaced by wealth. Now I want something else. I want more wealth. And the idol of wealth becomes stronger and gains ascendancy. 
and that even the love of money ceases to have mastery over his heart of many a thriving citizen, but it's because he's drawn into the whirl of politics and he is now lorded over him by a love of power. So what Chalmers is saying is he's showing this, these linkages. First you want this, then that's not enough, you want this. Then you don't want that anymore because you want this. So here's where he goes with this thought. There is not one of these transformations in which the heart is left without an object. It is its desire for one particular object may be conquered, but as to its desire for having some object or another, that is inconquerable. So what he's saying is the heart always desires. What the heart desires can be replaced, but you can't make the heart no longer desire. The only way to dispossess it of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. The heart will always love. It will always love something. And the only way to dislodge a wrong love or a, a lesser love is with another love. It, it can only be replaced. And so this is where he goes with it. He says, it is when we're admitted to the number of, the of God's children through faith in Christ Jesus that the spirit of adoption is poured into us. It is then that the heart brought under the mastery of one great and predominant affection is delivered from the tyranny of these former desires in the only way in which deliverance is possible, the expulsive power of a new desire. And that faith, which is revealed to us from heaven, it's indispensable to the sinner's justification is also the instrument of the greatest of all moral and spiritual achievements on the nature on a nature dead to the influence and beyond the reach of every other application. In other words, what he's saying is, your heart will love something. It will always desire something. Before we're brought into God's family, that desire is distorted. It's upside down, it's backwards. It wants things that are never gonna satisfy. And so something new has to keep coming along and replacing it, making it better. But once we become one of God's children, he doesn't cancel desire in our hearts. He replaces it. He replaces it with something that's even better. That is, I think, what Peter was saying, which is he has given us everything for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us. That's our new desire. That's our new passion. That's the expulsive power of a new desire. And so when Paul at the beginning here then tells us, let love be genuine, what he's saying is, don't stop trying to love, but love rightly, love genuinely. So that's why he would say in this section that that love has to be genuine. It has to be real. It, it has to be something that is uh, uh, focused in a right direction. Let love be genuine. And so what does genuine love look like? How, how does sanctification look for look to us? What does it look like in us? Well, sanctification is our growing in grace. It is us walking closer and closer to Jesus. Remember in chapter 8, we heard those he, uh, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So if you want to see what genuine, real, proper love looks like, look to Jesus. If you want to know what you should be walking like, how you should be loving and loving and caring for other people, look to Jesus. God has given you everything you need to know or everything you need for life and godliness through the knowledge of Jesus. And he's given you a desire in your heart. He's written his law on your heart to incline you in that direction, to lead you that way. So love, sanctification, our growth in grace is never accomplished by a force of our will but only by renewed desires. So if, if you're approaching this list, and now we're going to get to this list of these commands, if you approach this with an incorrect attitude, if you think this is my checklist, and this is what I'm going to do, I'm going to check these off every day, you will, be, you will either wind up in despair or worse, you'll succeed. And if you succeed, then you'll think that you have arrived, that it's all been based on you. So what we have to do is we have to approach this list with the understanding that God is telling us these things, not in order that we check them off and do them, but to show us. He's not giving us a list to do. He's, he's giving us a picture, if you will. 
Let love be genuine. Now let me show you what genuine love looks like. Let me imprint this on your mind and on your heart and, and lead you to approach life in light of this because I'm at, at work within you to will and to do. And so uh, let me give you externally through my word, this picture of what genuine love looks like. And so this is what he says, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Abhor what is evil. What, what, the things in the world around us, there's plenty of evil out there. there. There's plenty that will drag us away from God. He's told us to abhor it, to hate it. So genuine love hates evil. It, it, it does, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. The, 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 the true genuine love will hate what is evil. But he also says then, hold fast to what is good. We have to cling on to those good things. There's plenty of evil in the world. There's also plenty of good in the world. And you have to be careful and you have to be looking for it. So when you see the good, you have to hang on to it. It's not as easy to hold on to as you would hope it would be. So what are those good things? What are some of those things that, that we should be hanging on to? Philippians 4.8 is not a bad place to start. This is a good memory verse for you. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commandable, if there is any excellence, if anything is worthy of praise, think upon these things. Hang on to those things. So in, in, in your television viewing or your internet surfing or your book selections, be really careful. We're told to hang on to what is good. Pursue what is good. Grab it. Don't let it go. Think on these things because these things will have an effect in you. It will, it will begin to touch your desires and, and your emotions and what you're longing for. Verse 10, love one another with a brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. This is what genuine love looks like, brotherly affection. Now, in the New Testament, the word brother, when it's talking about people in the church, is not, strictly speaking, men. It, it's not a masculine term. It is those who've been welcomed into God's family. So uh, um, brother can be both male and female. And so that's what it's talking about here. It's not saying have masculine love. It's saying have brotherly love, have familial love, love like you love your family. Remember what he said at the beginning of chapter nine, you've been grafted into a new body and, and you have parts in this body are all different, but we've been grafted in. We have this unity. This is what we should be doing then is love one another with a brotherly affection, with a familial affection. And then once you love the other person, outdo them in showing honor. Be, be more respectful to them. It's almost like he says, have a competition to see who can be the most uh, deferential, the most caring, the most respectful for somebody else. Outdo one another in showing honor. Um, love them that way. Care for them that way. Don't look for excuses to, to ridicule or belittle somebody, but look for ways to lift them up and honor them. Hang on to what's good. Verse 11, don't be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. So what, what he says is, um, don't get around to meeting the things that God tells you to do, but that would be slothful in zeal. Don't, don't slide into it or say, well, I'll get to that eventually. He says, be fervent in spirit. Let your spirit be fervent and engage in these things. So don't hope in, in your ability to do these things to make you right with God. But since you have been made right with God, pursue them with zeal. Be fervent because ultimately you're serving the Lord. So as you love one another with, with brotherly affection, as you outdo each other in showing honor, what you're doing is you're serving the Lord. You're looking at this other person. You're saying, God saved them. He's united us into one family. We're grafted into one tree together. And therefore, as I serve that person, I'm serving the Lord. I'm, I'm accomplishing God's purposes in that life by doing whatever it is that he's, been given, he's given me to do. So don't be slothful in zeal. That, that phrase makes me smile. I think, how are you slothful in zeal? If you're slothful, you're not zealous. Zealous would seem to be the opposite. But what it is, is you could have a good, strong feeling about something and just never get around to doing it. So don't do that. Instead, make sure that you're serving the Lord. Then he says, rejoice in hope. 
Be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. This is a message we need today really badly. We really need to hear this. Rejoice in hope. Hope in a biblical understanding is not um, wishing for something that's highly improbable. Hope in a biblical understanding is I have an assurance of something that's in the future. I haven't received it yet, but I have an assurance. I know for a fact that's coming. And so my, my hope um, is, is sitting in the future waiting for me. It's a promise that, that I haven't grasped yet, but I'm anticipating it. So what we're told here is rejoice in hope. Rejoice, look to that and say, no matter what comes my way, I know I have this thing in heaven. I know I have this thing that I can wait for, that I can grab onto. And so that brings me joy. Even when we're told be patient in tribulation, even when hardship, when difficulty comes our way, we're supposed to be patient. Why? Because we're rejoicing in hope. We're anticipating what's going to come. So if we know the end of the story, by the way, if you peek at the end of the book, God wins. So, so you got that hope. Um, Jesus comes back. You got that hope. So in tribulation, you can be patient. You can look at these things and say, well, it's hard. It's difficult. But I know the end of the story. And so I'm going to wait for the Lord. I'll, I'll wait for him to get here. And then the hard one, be constant in prayer. Um, I can't remember which book it was in, but it said, if you ever want to humble somebody, ask them about their prayer life. So how's your prayer life? How are you doing spending time with the Lord, with quiet time with the Lord? How, how is that working in your daily routine? Um, is it just a, a quick prayer before a meal? Or are you spending time in the morning and, and, and thinking through your day and praying through that and, and thinking through the body of Christ, all your friends in the church and, and praying through that? Um, are you praying that way? Are you constant in prayer? Do you want to be constant in prayer? The, the, the renewed desires that we've been given should lead you because we are given the love of God to say, Lord, I want to talk with you. And, and I'll tell you, in this time of lockdown and COVID and, and distancing and all of that, prayer can really easily suffer. And speaking from experience, I, I have to really work hard to be intentional to say, okay, done my Bible study before I get busy on all these other things, I need to stop and pray. And, and, and you need to be constant in it. It needs to be a work. It's something that you should struggle towards. But understand, again, it's because the Lord is at work to will and to do in you. So he wants you to pray. He asks you to pray, and he calls you to pray. And so pray. And if you're not praying, pray that you'll pray. Pray that God will cause you to grow in prayer. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So Christian generosity here begins in the household of God, contribute to the needs of the saints. Um, needs could be financial. Uh, people could have a, a financial burden, especially in, in, in COVID times when things begin to slow down. It could be a financial need. I think more often in our context, the need is, is not necessarily financial, but relational. Um, it could be um, times of loneliness, feelings of isolation. Um, there are just multiple ways that, that the saints have needs. So how do you know them? How do you know what their needs are? Well, you got to know the saints. You got to talk with people. You've got to be engaged with people. That's why we have small groups, because Sunday morning is okay, but it's not the most ideal way to engage with other people and find out what's going on in their life. What are they struggling with? How can I contribute to the needs of the saints? And to show hospitality, that's a great word. It's philo zeno. Philo, love, zeno, the other. Love other people. Love the stranger. Love the person that is not like you, the person who doesn't live in your house. You have to show, seek to show hospitality. You have to work at that. It, it doesn't come naturally. It's much easier to just stay home. But we have to work on, on showing hospitality, on loving the other, loving the person that's not exactly like you. Verse 14, actually 14 through the end is really one continual thought, but, but it starts with this idea, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now he's going to pick this up and, and unpack this thought, 
But this is something that does not come natural to us. Um, we, we are defensive animals. We don't like to be troubled. And there's a natural bent in us to show retribution, to, to uh, seek revenge. But what he's telling us here is that that perfect love, that love that's unfeigned, is extended outside now the brownies of the church. It reaches beyond the church. It, it reaches to those who persecute you. And we're told to bless them. Now, blessing could be just saying a nice prayer for them. It could be actually doing good for them, um, going out of your way to serve a person who's persecuting you. Um, it sounds insane. There's a story of a, um, I'm pretty sure this is Pastor Zahn. Uh, there's a, a Romanian pastor in the 90s, um, Joseph Zahn, and he was under communist rule in Romania. And he was a very effective preacher and pastor. And the local police chief decided that he was going to shut him down. So he came into his house and he confiscated all his library. And then every day he would bring Joseph in and interrogate him and, and just actually torture him and hurt him and, and regularly uh, pester him. He was trying to get Joseph, Pastor Joseph, to renounce the gospel and stop preaching because that doesn't fit under communist rule. And one day, Pastor Zahn came in to the interrogation room. It was really wild because they would interrogate him. They'd send him home. They said, now come back tomorrow at eight. And he would show up the next day at eight instead of fleeing town. So he comes in one morning and, he's, and, and the, the police chief is sitting there and he says, sir, I need to apologize. Pastor Zahn says, I need to apologize to you. I need to ask your forgiveness. And the police commissioner is just like, what? He says, yes, last night, as I was praying for you, as I was asking God's mercy on you, in my heart, I began to feel hatred for you. And, and that's just wrong. So would you please forgive me for beginning to feel hatred towards you? And it blew the guy's mind. He then proceeded with the interrogation and the torture. But what Pastor Zahn found out later is after the fall of uh, the Ceausescu regime and, and, and uh, communism end, he actually met this man, and the man, I don't know if he ever became a Christian or not, but he said, you know, Joseph, I never enjoyed torturing you. That was never something I really liked, but I loved being with you. There was something different about you. That was Pastor Zahn blessing those who persecuted him in a way that we will probably never be called to do. But it has a power. It has something that happens when we do exactly what uh, what. Paul is telling us to do. Bless those who bless, or persecute you. Bless them and do not curse. Verse 15 then goes on and says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So this again is, is where Christianity, sanctification, the work that God's doing in us is rooted in reality. He doesn't say life is going to be wonderful. Don't worry about it. He tells us to rejoice. Genuine love is not Pollyanna-ish. We also weep with those who weep. So it recognizes that life has these highs and these lows. So what we can do is we can look at what's going on with Ron LaFoon in the hospital, and we can look to, to Rachel and to Tim and Michelle, and we can weep with them because our dear brother is sick and on the verge of death. And, and we can feel sorry with them. And that is genuine love. It is acting in proper response to them, not being, you know, this, this, um, uh, health, wealth, and prosperity approach that just says, well, if you just believe, you'll be better. That, that's horrible. It's damnable. It's exactly opposite of what we're told. So we should, we should rejoice with those who rejoice. When things go well, be happy with your brother or sister. Don't be jealous. When things go poorly, weep with them. Be honestly sad with them. Feel sorry for them. And the way that looks is, verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Live in harmony with each other. That was what he said at the beginning. We are grafted into one body. There is one body in Christ. And so we have to live in harmony with each other. Um, we, we shouldn't be haughty. That's, that's such a great word. I think it sounds like what it is. It's, I don't think that I'm better than you. I, I don't look down on you and say, well, I got it figured out and you're still getting there. It is exactly what he said at the beginning. Remember last week, the first thing that he told us is 
the body of Christ, to be a Christian, to work in the church, the first step is humility and to agree with God. So that's what he's saying here is he's reminding us again. Why do you think he repeats himself? Because it's really easy to be haughty. It's really easy to be proud. Um, that sneaks in quite easily. He says, associate with the lowly. Associate with the lowly. That is extraordinarily countercultural. We don't want to associate with the lowly. We want to associate with the powerful, with the rich, with the makers, the shakers, and the doers. But as Christians, we do what Jesus did. Jesus headed to the least of these. He, he went and he hung out with the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the lepers and the people who were blind and lame. He, he sought them out and they sought him out because they recognized in him that love, that genuine love. So never be wise in your own sight. Um, if you start thinking that you're extraordinarily wise, double check yourself. Um, it could be that you are, and that would be humble to say, yeah, but if you just think that everything you do and say is right, then maybe not. Um, so again, we're aimed at the household of God, but really if you're living this way, it's gonna, it's gonna spread out. It'll, it'll be seen in other places. So the last section, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So now what he's saying is those people who persecute you, you bless them. You don't repay them evil for evil, but do what is honorable in their sight. If possible, as far as you possibly can, live at peace with all. And I think Pastor Zahn was a great example of that. He couldn't make that police chief stop torturing him, but he could honor him and he could respect the man's authority, even though it, he was abusing it and misusing it. And so he, he would come in and he would, as far as possible, live peaceably with him. Um, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This is that rejoicing in hope. We know that there is a day coming when Jesus will return, when the books will be opened and people will be judged according to what they've actually done, not according to hearsay, not according to what somebody thinks they did, but with God's perfect knowledge, perfect understanding, the book will be opened and they will be judged. So when, when vengeance is God's, it means that either what they have done has been paid for by Jesus Christ or it will be paid for by them. Where is your role in repaying them in that? It, it's, it doesn't exist. So don't seek revenge because God will repay. That, that's our hope. That's, that's how we remain steadfast in tribulation with rejoicing and hope is because we know that God will do it. To the contrary, he says in verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heat coals on his head. So what you do is you see this person who has been opposed to you, who's ridiculed you, who's been just horrible to you, and you bring them some bread from Panera when that comes around. And it blows their mind because why would you do that for me? What's going on is it says that you will heap burning coals on their head. Now, I have read that that's actually a good thing. Somebody said heaping burning coals on somebody's head was supposed to be a blessing um, because it's, it's burning coals. It's not fire. So what you're doing is you're warming, warming them when they're cold. Well, I don't think that fits in the context here. I think the broader context is the vengeance of the Lord and, and those books being opened. So as you're pouring out good on this person, what is that person supposed to do? How should they properly respond? Well, they should properly respond in love. But if they decide that they're going to remain your enemies, as you're pouring these good things on them, you're doing it in hope, hope that they'll turn, hope that they'll change. But if not then you're pouring burning coals on their head. They're, the judgment is increasing because God's goodness has been exhibited to them and they're not, they're not accepting it. They're rejecting it. So in the end, he sums it all up. He says, do not be overcome by evil. It is, it is extraordinarily easy in our day and age to be overcome by evil. Social media makes it really simple. It, it's possible to ingest all sorts of nastiness and, and, and vicious things. Um, the internet provides a nice conduit of great information 
attached to a sewer line right into your house. It is possible to be overcome by evil. It is possible to, to not pay attention to those. But Paul warns us, don't become, uh, don't be overcome by evil, but rather do what's good, do what's right, do the right thing in the midst of this world. In this way, the church is abundantly countercultural. It couldn't be more different. It tells us to live in a way that makes absolutely no sense, not seeking revenge, not indulging in evil, but instead walking in this world being good. Now, how do we do that? Back to verse 9. Let love be genuine. Let, let your love for God be genuine. Let it be real. Let it be manifest in your life because genuine, real, biblical love will do stuff. It will cause actions in your life. It will pour out of you in a way that will blow people's minds. So that's how he ends it all is, is overcome evil with good. God is working in this world to overcome the evil that has broken it. He's working in this world through his saints by taking his people and changing them slowly and working in them. So how do you ensure that that love that you have for God is genuine? We'll continue on through that. That is what the rest of the book of Romans is going to be doing, is giving us those ways to ensure that love is, be, is genuine. But don't forget, folks, this is not a checklist telling you what to do. This is a picture of what that genuine love looks like as it expresses in your life. God is at work, at work in you to will and to do. His sanct your sanctification is his desire your growth in these things is what he wants. One of the ways he accomplishes is that is by telling you, go do this. So you do have to walk in it, but don't ever trust in your ability. Trust in the fact that God is at work in me in these things. And, and this is what the church looks like. This is how the church is countercultural. What I mentioned last week is the church is salt and light. This is how, because God is at work in us to will and to do. Let's pray. Lord, would you make all of these things that we just saw this morning, all of these commands, Lord, would you make them abundantly real in each one of us? Lord, would you cause them to grow in us? As, as Peter told us, if we have these things and we're increasing in them, we won't be fruitless. We won't be useless. Lord, you are accomplished these, accomplishing these things in our hearts. You have given us everything we need for life and godliness. Lord, it's your desire that we grow in sanctification. So would you accomplish these things in us? Lord, grant us a genuine, a real love, a love that would dislodge distorted desires, a, a love that would eclipse smaller things in our lives and our hearts and lead us to enjoy the world that you've given us around us in a godly and a right way. Lord, lead us to reject what's evil and to hold on to what is good. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.